as soon as our granddaughters were born, the Kinnikan clan began noticing some similarities. She had daddy's eyes. She had her mommy's smile. In many ways, they were, well, what you might call a look-alike, huh? Copies of their parents. Not only were they look-alikes, they were act-alike. Um, in other words, they were acting like their parents as much as they looked like their parents. They were copying mom and dad's every move. Mommy was on the floor doing exercises before her run. Jolie is on the floor stretching her arms and reaching them out to the side. Dad is at the wheel of his car. Ava wants to drive the car. (laughs) It's hilarious, isn't it? Those two sweet things take this work so seriously. Imitation. It grows children from their first days, from their first steps, and it never stops. It never stops. Adults, well, we learn sort of the same way. Um, Even when it comes to our understanding of God and who he, He is. We're in 1 Corinthians again this morning. We've been at this book since the beginning of the year, 2019, and we've reached chapter 4, and I'm beginning to wonder how far we'll get in 2019, but it's, it's been a, a great time for me anyway. And here we find ourselves in a section that Paul describes, uh, where he describes himself as a father and appeals for his children to copy him. Notice this, these words, 1 Corinthians 4, 14. I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you don't have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. Imitate me, says Paul. If there's one factor that shapes our lives and minds and our ideas about God, our understanding of him, it's how we see God lived out in the lives of others. Their imitation, their example. For children, this is especially true when it comes to their parents. For a church, it's also true for each one of us, for all the young minds that are here in our midst If we portray God as stern and dictatorial, that's how they're going to see it. If we see him as gentle and warm, if we see him as strict and punitive, if we see him as supportive and forgiving by how we do life, by how we interact, that's how they see. That's how others see. Paul said, copy me. I'm your father. Now, it's interesting, when he says that, there are also, there's some competition. He says there's 10,000 instructors, a myriad of leaders, an infinite number of options that are calling for attention in Corinth. The word there, guardian, is translated in the New King James Version, or King James, as instructor. But it comes from a word, a unique Greek word, where we get the word pedagogue. 
And that is, that means a school teacher, a schoolmaster, a tutor, a teacher. But in Paul's day, my understanding is that this word wasn't so much a school teacher as it was a servant. The instructor or guardian were people who cared for children, who were employed by oftentimes a servant, uh, taking care of a child, taking them to school, watching them while parents were away, accompanying them on, on errands. So here for the church in Corinth, there were plenty of people vying for attention, offering instruction. But Paul knows that the ambition of these people, of many of them, the intentions of these suitors of the church in Corinth were far from stellar. They had, Paul says, 10,000 voices following them, calling out to them, but not many fathers. Paul calls himself their father. And he was, really. He was their father spiritually through him. By his earnest labor of love and care and devotion, that's what brought the good news to, to Corinth. He was the conduit of God's saving grace, his message of the good news to Corinth. He told them about the unfathomable mysteries of God's love. He told them how Jesus, a member of the triune God, three-in-one Godhead, came to earth, was born miraculously conceived of the Holy Spirit in a virgin. He told them how Jesus lived a perfect life here on earth, how he taught life-giving truth while he was here. And he taught it in a way that no one else ever had. He healed the sick. He restored the broken. He, he raised the dead. And then he himself was, was falsely accused and put to death, but he conquered the grave. T Paul told them the story. The good news story. He told them that they were sinners, that they had gone astray, that they were moral failures, destined because of that to eternal death, because of their rebellious ways. But that wasn't the end of it. They were still, Paul told them, they were still the object of God's love, his care, his compassion. He told them, that Christ offered them eternal life, eternal life by a gift of God's grace, that Jesus was the sin bearer for them. He took upon himself the penalty for their sin, for your sin, for my sin. Paul told them that he gave mercy. God gave mercy to them and forgiveness and life forevermore. Paul told them these things. In his second letter, he says as much in these pivotal verses, 2 Corinthians 5.19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ Jesus, not counting people's sins against them. And again, one of my favorite verses, that God made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Yes, Paul had begotten them. That's how the King James renders it. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. He was the one. He was the one that God used to grace their lives with the transforming message of the good news. He was their spiritual father, their father in godliness, in spiritual life. And you can almost feel the ethos 
the emotional heart of Paul's appeal. The King James puts it this way, I beseech you, I urge you, I plead with you, be followers of me. That's the King James. But in most other translations, New King James and all the rest, basically, NIV and others, the word is translated, be imitators of me. Imitators. The Greek word is mimnetai, from which we get our word in English, mimic. Imitate me. Mimic me. And the implications is that we as followers of Christ are imitators of Christ to others. And Paul is saying, copy my speech, copy my mannerisms, copy my habits, copy my outlook for your spiritual direction. You know, kids are really good imitators. Sometimes we catch them doing some of the most charming things, and we have a good way to do that these days with our smartphones. But for kids, when they're doing these acts, these charming little things, mimicking, imitating, it's actually behavioral development. When these little shadows play at being you or me, whenever they imitate us, they're learning. They're sweeping the floor. They're, they're reading books. They're looking at your cell phone. <laughs> they're eating well. They're copying sounds and c- countless repetitions and starting to narrow the words to ones that actually make sense. And it just so happens that I have one that just makes sense and I, I ha- don't have it on the screen, but I have to show it to you. And so if on the camera you can just zoom in on this, let me just show you this is an amazing little thing. Turn on this mic. Anybody know what the song that is? No, of course you don't. But I know what it is. Papa, Papa, how are you today? That's a Sabbath school song that she's singing. And by the way, that word Papa, does anyone know who that might be? <coughs> Ah, uh, yeah, that's me. And uh, that's a precious, that's a precious sound in, in my eyes. That sweet sound is special in Papa's ears. But actually, that kind of thing is happening all the time. With kids, with really every human intersection. All the time. Because I am... And you are, you are and I am a picture of God to people in this world. I read about God in his word. I come to convictions from his word about who he is, how he acts, what he's about, what his ideals are. And that picture becomes a part of my being and I act that way in my relationship with you. I imitate, I copy, I mimic. And then I also see God in you. And I copy, I imitate. In Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, there are a broad range of suitors who are vying for their attention in this regard. They're urging the followers of Christ in Corinth 
saying, follow me, follow me. And Paul says in this letter, I'm your guy. I'm your guy. I'm your spiritual father. And it's not as though they owe Paul this place. He's not using spiritual manipulation on them. He knows that it's his God-given gift, his God-given purpose, his calling. And he's not saying, you owe me this. He's saying, I've got something for you. I've got your back. I've been all about you from the very beginning. You know, all of us, whether we are fathers or not, ourselves, know what the love of a father is. We do. We know the love of a father. Some of you have enjoyed the best of this in life. But even if you haven't, we can all sense the love of a father and what it truly is. We know in our hearts the love of a father from our heavenly father. That picture has informed us. And we know that the love of a father, the love of our father in heaven, is the best of intentions. It's the deepest of care and concern. It's the purest of motives. That's the love of the Father. Our Father, our Father wants growth, not dependence. Our Father wants maturity, not arrogance. Our Father wants love, not sentimentality. Our Father wants strength, not unhealthy attachments. Our Father wants wisdom. He wants sound judgment, not thoughtlessness and imprudence. Our Father wants godliness, not hypocrisy. There were other suitors calling for Corinth's attention, and Paul says these ones are puffed up. They're arrogant. They're full of air themselves, and that word is repeated over and over in the book, Paul's words to the church in Corinth. We looked at those a few Sabbaths ago. You recall maybe 1 Corinthians 4.16, where Paul said, some of you have become arrogant, that word puffed up, as if I were not coming to you. That word actually means to be filled with air, self-inflated, trying to look bigger than I really am. Paul says these are the kind of people that are around them calling for their attention in Corinth. They were good actors. They were great imagining their counsel as crucial these people, they were sure that what they said was worthy of importance and attention. They had what they thought was important, facts and photos and websites and subscribers. They had it. Their intentions, however, were marginal at best. Most likely they were hurtful, discordant, and disruptive. We have those same suitors today in our lives. Most of them also challenged in some way and unlikely to be for our best good. You know, a few years ago, uh, the Kinney family, were in, we were enjoying a winter day on the slopes, something that we've loved to do for many years. And uh, to me, skiing down a slope with the Kinney clan, there's really nothing quite like it. And then the ride back up the hill, the connecting that can be done is really very enjoyable. Well, one day I remember noticing a boarder, a young boarder, a snowboarder, who had all the equipment, everything just right. 
I mean, he looked really good. His pants were just styling. His coat was, you know, the latest. He had a flashy helmet. He had goggles that were really nice. And he had a scarf hanging out his back pocket of his pants that were halfway down his rear. And uh, he was a real piece. That is a border. That's a border, you know. And I remember pointing to him and saying to my kid, hey, look at that, you know. And my kid said to me, poser. <laughs> I said, what's a poser? Oh, a poser. He has all the trappings. He has everything to look good, to look cool. But he has a huge skill deficit. He's a poser. A poser. You know, that happens on the slopes. That happens in life. There are posers. There are would-be influencers that have pretensions of knowledge, pretensions of insight, spiritual insight. But if you look at it on the authenticity gauge, it registers toward empty on the Spirit of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.20, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but power. That's what the kingdom of God is about. Central to God's church Central to our lives, central to the Christian walk is our dependence totally on God through Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You know, a person can know a lot. A person can fashion eloquent spiritual show, an eloquent spiritual show. A, A person can make pretensions, pretensions of insight and influence. A person can know all about the Bible all about history and prophecy and standards. But you know, unless a person is filled, influenced, guided, and directed by the Holy Spirit, unless he's at work in you, in me, it's just a show. That's really all it is. It's just a show. It may be a compelling cover, but it's a poser. I'm a poser if that's who I am. There's no substance If there's more storm in my life than there is calm, if peace, love, and goodness are way down in the poles in my life, the energy may be misplaced. My energy, the fruit of the Spirit, is unmistakable. Paul said, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Spirituality is a Holy Spirit work. It's a Holy Spirit-inspired venture. It manifests itself in remarkable and relationship-engendering ways. Paul said in Romans, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. You know, Paul is not about shaming the church in Corinth. Yes, the church had some flat sides that needed addressing, but Paul isn't going to humiliate them. He's not going to embarrass them. He says in verse number 14 in chapter 4, I don't write these things to shame you. That's not what he's about. But as my beloved children, I warn you. You know, there's a difference between warning and shaming. Shame makes you feel like you're wrong, not just that you've done something wrong. Shame makes you feel like you're second, third class. Ultimately, shame makes you feel like you're inadequate, 
like you're not lovable, like you're not a worthwhile or, or worthy person. There, are some things, there were some things going on in the church at Corinth that they should have been ashamed of. They should have been sad about and guilty for. There were some reasons for remorse in Corinth, some reasons for tears of guilt. That was in order. But Paul wasn't trying to create shame, but he was trying to create an understanding that would change their lives. That's what he wanted. What had happened in the past, that was history. What Paul wanted them for them in the future was a new direction, a God-honoring direction. That was Paul's desire. And he said, there may be countless suitors, 10,000 spiritual guardians, like, well, he could list a few of them, but they were just guardians. He was their father, their spiritual father. It was through his efforts, through the Spirit's empowerment, that he had brought this church into being. He was their father. And as their father, he had the most interest and care and concern for them. And and if he couldn't be there, he was going to help them somehow. So he says to them in verses 14 to 17, For this reason, I've sent you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He'll remind you of my way of life in Jesus Christ, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. So Paul says, I can't be there, but I'm sending someone who is just like me, who I've trained, who is special to me, Timothy. And we, we read about Timothy in, in, the, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter number 16. We read of Paul's meeting with Timothy. And, and Paul was immediately impressed by the sincerity and the earnestness and the trustworthiness and the reports that, that were in about this young man. And so he invites Timothy to join him, join him in ministry, to be a part of his missionary journey. By the way, that is called discipleship. That's what Paul was doing with Timothy. And they traveled together. They encouraged, they trained, they exhorted, they taught. And then Timothy saw Paul's passion for Christ. Timothy heard biblical truths that inspired him. Timothy saw the way that Paul engaged and communicated, and Timothy was imprinted from young in life, young in ministry, and he was equipped through that time together with Paul for ministry himself, for leadership in the church. Look how Paul introduces Timothy a little later to the church in Philippi. I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon, Paul says to the church in Philippi, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him, Timothy, who will show genuine concern for your welfare, for everyone looks out for their own interests, not for those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served me with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. See? So there it is. Paul and Timothy... If he can't be there, he selects carefully, prayerfully, Timothy. And Timothy, this is a man he's trained for service. He's equipped for ministry. He's seen him empowered by God for success. And he employs him for effectiveness. Timothy's faithful service for Christ, his effective spreading of the good news, 
his deep understanding of the transforming power of the Spirit of God can be indelibly traced back to Paul's investment in his life. Certainly God's Spirit was at work in young Timothy's life, but it was Paul's example. It was his mentorship. Timothy was his trainee. Paul discipled Timothy. And what Paul did for Timothy, what Paul was offering to do for Corinth, God invites you and me to do today. That's his invitation. That's what he said when just before Jesus left earth and the great commission. He said, go and make disciples. That's our calling. Go and make disciples. Baptize. Teach them everything I, I have given you. And I'm with you always. So Jesus said to us, that's our mission. That's our purpose. To make disciples. To tell others about God's amazing grace. His forgiveness. His restoration. Through your words. And through your life. Pray for other people's success. Encourage them through your own failures and, and hardships. And treat others the way that Christ is treating you, has treated you. Bear people's sorrows. Celebrate people's success. Share the wisdom God's shared with you. Remind them to be clothed with the armor of God. Remind them to fight the good fight. Help them identify the giftedness they have from God and use those spiritual gifts to reach out, to serve, to uplift. You know, this is really what we here at Village Church have hung our hat on. We call it 2020 vision. I, you know, I just couldn't see the year 2020 coming towards us without including it somehow. And so we, we did what many have, have done, but just looking ahead and saying, what should we be about? And our 2020 vision is to make disciples. That's what we're called to do, making disciples. Our mission is still the same. It's on the front of every bulletin. You see it there, seeking God, sharing the eternal gospel, serving others. That's still our mission. That's still what we're about. And that mission communicates the reason for our existence. Our, it, it is our overarching intention and our purpose. And every day, that's what we are about. I hope to seek God, to share the everlasting gospel and to serve others. That's what we are about. And we haven't changed that with our 2020 vision. No, neither have we changed the values that we that we developed a few years ago. You remember that when we talked about loving kindness, how we should graciously connect with others, and then integrity, how we humbly submit to the inspired word of God and everything in life, and how we give ourselves to service and impartially investing ourselves to serve and help others and worship, whether it be personal or corporate. That's what we're about here at Village Church and witnessing. Those are our corporate values that we are all about. And it also hasn't changed those or changed our purpose. And we've said this over and over again, but I'll say it again because it, it is phrased so well in the first words of the, the book Acts of the Apostles by Ellen White where she says, 
The church is God's appointed agency for the salvation of men. It was organized for service, and its mission is to carry the gospel to the world. I love that. Just straight and succinct. From the beginning, it's been God's plan that through His church shall be reflected to the world His fullness and His sufficiency. Boy, wrap your mind around that. The members of the church, you and me, those whom He has called out of darkness into His marvelous light, are to show forth His glory. The church is the repository of the riches of the grace of Christ. And through the church will eventually be made manifest, even to the principalities and powers in heavenly places, the final and full display of the love of God. That's what we're about, friends. That right there says it. But for a while now, I think you probably have, and I've sensed our need here at Village Church for deepening in the core of our platform and the reason for our existence in a way that Jesus mandated, and that is making disciples. Making disciples. Our goal at Village Church really is to be a beehive of disciple-making. That's what we want to be about. That's the essence of Jesus' commission. That was the essence of Jesus' life. He invested three and a half years into 12 people. Three and a half years of them learning and seeing the way Jesus did life, what he said, how he encouraged, how he helped and healed. They learned what it meant to do justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. They learned in person what that meant. And then at his departure, Jesus said, now go and do the same that I've done to you. Make disciples. And the whole thing is really cyclical. It's a purposeful operation until Jesus comes back. It's the MO of our church. You were disciplined. I mean, you were. You were discipled. (laughs) You were discipled by someone at some time, and you in turn are discipling someone. Someone, somewhere, you are. And then those people that you have discipled are discipling someone else. And that someone else is discipling someone else. And it just grows and grows and grows. That's God's church. Discipleship is learning about Jesus. That's what discipleship is. Discipleship is entering into a life-transforming, life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. And then being equipped through His Word, through prayer, through the truths of His Word, through worship, through engagement in service. And that happens. That's what we're about here at the church. And it happens every Sabbath morning in a beautiful way in our children's divisions. My, you want to see discipling at its best? Go watch those wonderful volunteers who are helping children know what it means to follow Jesus or step into one of the adult classes or be a part of the adult superintendent Sabbath school program. Discipling is going on whether we're praying, even here at worship, this is discipling. We are focusing on the truths of God's word. We're worshiping the, the God in heaven. We're finding encouragement and service. And it happens Wednesdays, my, with our Pathfinders and Adventure Clubs, with people coming, old and young, to learn and to be taught and trained and guided in appropriate ways so that God can be honored 
Discipleship happens all over the place here at Village Church as we share what God's doing for us, share our experiences, share our testimonies of our own journey, sometimes in words, sometimes in song, sometimes just in action. We're sharing. That's what our life is about. And we want Village Church. It's my dream. The Village Church would be a safe place for this to happen, a safe place where people can come and be transformed and not have to worry about false suitors who are influencing in, in wrong ways. Discipleship, that's what we're about. It includes our mission, it includes our purpose, our values, it includes everything we're doing. It includes what we're doing right now. But this is all in what Jesus said, go and make disciples. But I have to say that there's something that's disconnected. Something has gone wrong. I see it in my life. I see it in myself. Yes, we're serving, we're praying, we're worshiping, we're discipling, but we're not doing it quite like Jesus said. Because disciples learn and grow and then go out and make more disciples. And then those disciples go out and make more disciples. And it happens here, it happens in our home, but it's not happening very well. How do I know it's not happening? Well, here's how I know. Um, very few out there are coming in here. That's not our goal, of course, just to get them to come in here from out there. I don't mean to say it that way, but just to be blunt. But, you know, very few are coming in here. We had a wonderful set of meetings here recently with Taj Pakleb, and everyone was blessed, but very few from the community were here. Why? Because we really don't have much connection with the community. That's why. That's why. Too many of us too many people are just passing through these halls and passing out of these halls. Some of them never to come back again. Now, you might say, well, that's their choice, okay? But, you know, we could really make it a lot easier if everybody that walked in here really knew that we loved and cared for them. <laughs> if they really knew by what we do, by what we say, by how we act, by how we interact. Paul loved the church in Corinth and God loves each one of us and he wants to use each one of us. But what I see in Paul is what I see God needs in each one of us. Paul was committed to that church, that church in Corinth, to teach and train and model and live and believe Christianity before them and he would do that with word and action and he made those relationships a sacred trust. And then he said, therefore I urge you, imitate me. 1 Corinthians 6, 14, imitate me. And by the way, that's a common thread. Paul just doesn't say it to the church in Corinth. He say, it says it virtually to every church he writes to. He says to them, he says to Corinth, he says to Thessalonica, he says to believers in Philippi and believers in Galatia, imitate me. You can see it over and over and over again. Imitate me. 
It's not because Paul had an inflated ego and thought he was doing Christian thing better than anyone else. Not at all. Rather, he knows that people need to see Christianity in person. And that's what's needed today. People need to see Christianity modeled. They need to see it in real life. Lived out in a transparent and accessible way. And that's especially what young people need. Especially. They need that from us, oldsters. They need to see adults doing Christianity winsomely, joyfully, non-judgmentally. Did you know that that usually comes with a smile on your face? It does, believe it or not. They need to see smiles on our faces and hear words of support and interest in our voices and not shame, not condemnation. They need to see us wrestling to understand the word of God and do the word with justice and integrity and compassion. That's what we're about here at Village Church. And to that end, I want to give myself and I want to appeal to you that you as well do the same. Would you? Would you be God's disciples? Discipling? Making that your mission in life? With everyone you see here? Everyone you see in the community? You're God's disciple. Discipling others. You know, last week, our world was struck with another heart-wrenching image. The Notre Dame Cathedral ablaze. Notre Dame, Our Lady, as it means, was considered one of the most famous and beautiful Gothic cathedral ever built. It was called one of the world's greatest treasures. It took 200 years to build. Imagine it. And over eight centuries, that cathedral survived numerous wars, pandemics, liberations, but it was destroyed in just a matter of hours. Just a matter of hours. And that burning has touched the lives of millions of people. President, the French president has pledged, we will rebuild this cathedral together. And indeed, people are interested. Over a billion dollars has been donated for reconstruction. But I got to thinking about that, as important as that is, and as much as I laud the, the benevolence of those who have given and the efforts to rebuild, isn't the value of one single person more than even that beautiful cathedral? Isn't that the case? Not that that place shouldn't be. I think it's a wonderful place, and I, and I applaud their reconstruction, but... How about our interest in the young lives, in the lives right here in this place that are before us, that we have an opportunity to build that can be destroyed in a moment with a word, with a look. So I'm asking you, how great is our task? It's, it's awesome. It's a privilege. It's our destiny to be examples for Jesus Christ so that others can see the saving grace of God who has transformed us 
and wants to transform them as we live out that life before them. So I'm asking you, would you be those disciples that God is calling for? Would you be? Would you be? Would you give your life? Would you see in your life here at Village and in your home and in your neighborhood, in our world, that God has called you to live his word and share his word that others can live and share and those can live and share and on it goes until Jesus comes back and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world until everyone hears and sees and knows and Jesus comes back. To that end, would you give yourself, raise your hand if that's your desire. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to be your disciples. We are your disciples, but we want to do it in the way that, that Jesus did, the way that Paul gave himself to, the way it has been done for so many centuries, and yet we find ourselves, at least for myself, struggling a bit because, because well, the connections end with, with these walls, these people here, and I want to be more useful in your hands for my community. All of us here sense that. Our community here at Village Church to love and encourage and to bless and to train and equip everyone here. And then to go to our neighbors and friends, to our children, to our city to share the good news. Lord, to that end, we can't do it without you, without your strength, but we know that you are able and willing to do that for us. And we will give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.